and you forget to make a record of the, what the vocal cords are doing. So you fix the neck bit, but they're still short of breath because the vocal cords weren't abducting fully. So that's the first thing I ask um, the trainees to document. What is the vocal cord doing? And what are the vocal cords doing in terms of percentage function? But that's what got me interested because you could improve someone's quality of life immensely in a relatively short time frame. Welcome back to BLA Connections, A Clear Voice. I'm your host, Natalie Watson, and I aim to bring you discussions and insights from experts from across the globe on all things laryngology. We are delighted to introduce you to the first episode of Series 4 and to our very first guest of this series, Professor Guri Sandhu. He will be talking to us today on the management of airway stenosis. Professor Guri Sandhu works in the National Airway Centre for Airway Reconstruction based at Imperial College Healthcare NHS Trust in London. Professor Sandhu is also our BLA president and in the perfect position to take us through this rare complaint. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Natalie. Thank you for the invite. And I hope what I have to say can be informative. I'm sure it will. So I introduced this as a rare complaint, but it's obviously something that you see quite a lot. So what first got you interested in airway stenosis? So as a registrar, I, I did spend a year at Great Ormond Street Hospital and I had exposure to paediatric airway problems. And most of the practices in managing airway stenosis, even in adult patients, were adapted from the paediatric population. And I later then had the opportunity to work for a head and neck surgeon by the name of Professor David Howard. A lot of you may know him. Yeah. And he was a magnificent head and neck surgeon, but he had a sideline interest in airway stenosis in adult patients. And his approach was somewhat different. And it, it was a case of seeing patients come in with tracheostomies and no voice, and a few days later, or a week or two later, leave with voice and no tracheostomy. And the delight in, the, in these patients' faces, especially the young adults who'd had to live many years with tracheostomies. And I thought, well, you know, this is significant, major, life-changing surgery. And that's what got me interested, because you could improve someone's quality of life immensely in a re relatively short time frame. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's, it's amazing. So how do you approach the management of someone who presents with some airway stenosis? Okay. You, usually patients have a diagnosis by the time they come to our centre. Sometimes they come to our centre with shortness of breath and then people don't know quite what's going on. So the history is the biggest clue here because the number one cause of adult airway stenosis, and my practice is almost exclusively adult airway stenosis, is you take a history and you, you sort of get an inkling of what's going on because either they've been on the intensive care unit and ventilated and you know if they're short of breath, they quite likely have some damage to the airway somewhere if it's not a lung complaint. Mm. Um, but then sometimes you'll get a patient who has no history and just has progressive shortness of breath, like some of the women we see with idiopathic stenosis. Yeah. And the absence of history, but the progressive difficulty in, in breathing will give you a clue that, that this is perhaps idiopathic. Mm -hmm. Or you have patients with systemic conditions or you suspect a systemic condition from the history alone. So imagine someone comes in and says, I've had a lot of bleeding and crusting from my nose recently, and I have no history of allergies or sinus problems. My ears feel a bit blocked. 
and I've noticed changes in my voice and I've got some breathing problems. I mean, that's vasculitis. Mm-hmm. And um, one in four patients with uh, granulomatosis with polyangitis, what we used to call vagueness granulomatosis, one in four patients with this condition will have laryngotracheal stenosis. So the history is the thing that gives it away. And then it's up to you to try and determine where and what this stenosis is. And quite often in clinic, you'll do a nasal endoscopy. Mm-hmm. And most importantly, you need to assess the vocal cord movement and determine that is normal because sometimes you concentrate on a stenosis that's in the cervical trachea or the subglottis and you forget to make a record of what the vocal cords are doing. So you fix the neck bit, but they're still short of breath because the vocal cords weren't abducting fully. So that's the first thing I ask um, the trainees to document. What is the vocal cord doing? and What are the vocal cords doing in terms of percentage function? I just don't want to tick, tick. I want to know, are they abducting fully? So we get them to do an E and then a sniff, and then we just document what the cords are doing. In the history, we also ask about swallowing problems. If there is any concern whatsoever about the swallowing, they get a swallowing assessment, usually a videophoroscopy. Mm -hmm. Um, In an older patient, even if they don't complain of swallowing problems, we will do a videophoroscopy because any surgery we do might actually make the swallowing worse. We also um, carry out lung function tests in clinic. We do voice analysis, we do swallowing scores. There's a whole team that works around any new presentation and all the data is gathered that's relevant. So before we do anything else surgically, we have a pretty good idea of what is going on. Do we request imaging? Yes, sometimes. A lot of the time these patients come with imaging. And if you want to image the major airways, then the modality of choice is a CT scan. And often they'll have a CT scan done where they've come from and we'll just get that imported and have a look at it. And occasionally we'll um, do our own scan. But for me, the most valuable assessment of the airway is on the operating table and endoscopy that we do on the operating table. So we do suspension laryngoscopy and assess the nature of the stenosis, the length of the stenosis, whether it is fibrotic, whether it's granular, Mm -hmm. do we need to take biopsies? And... On the operating table, you can quite often palliate the patient. You might not fix them long-term. Sometimes you'll fix them long-term or put a plan in place to fix them long-term. But you can certainly perform some sort of dilatation or open the airway up just to bring them temporary palliation from their shortness of breath. Brilliant. I mean, it certainly, as you were saying, requires an MDT approach. Once the decision has been agreed upon for surgery and you've done the MLB, the kind of diagnostic MLB potentially. Can you take us through the surgical technique or techniques that you would employ? So if we're dealing with systemic conditions such as vasculitis or sarcoidosis or mucous membrane pemphigoid, most of the management is going to be interval endoscopic airway surgery. So we nurse the airway to health over time. You inject steroids, you might make cuts with a laser or with a knife, gently balloon and perhaps repeat the procedure three or four weeks later while engaging with the medical teams to bring disease control. So it is a case of just keeping the plumbing opening until your clever medical colleagues have subdued the condition with their potions, if you like. So that's one set of patients. The other set of patients, I guess, are patients where they've got a scarring and stenosis. And the question is, where is the scarring and stenosis? Is it at the level of the vocal cords? Is it subglottis? Is it cervical trachea? 
And depending on where it is, our approach is, is different. And so if you've got a cervical tracheal stenosis and you've got the cartilage framework that is collapsed in or lost support, then an endoscopic approach isn't going to bring a long-term solution. I mean, you could palliate the patient, you could stent the patient, but it's not going to bring a long-term solution. So the approach there is to perform a tracheal resection. And if there's a subglottic stenosis, we can do a combination of tracheal and cricoid resection, or cricotracheal resection as it's called, or combinations thereof. Sometimes we'll just expand the subglottis with a posterior costal cartilage rib graft. And that's something we also do with posterior glottic scarring. Uh, if you have mature posterior glottic scar, then ra- even radical laser is, is, is not going to be the easy solution here because we've gone beyond just re- doing transoral partial laryngectomies to try and restore an airway and leave the patient with a, a poor voice and unsafe swallow. We should be beyond that. And so what we try and do is preserve the vocal cords as much we as much as we can. We make sure we don't impact the swallowing too much long term. And so with posterior glottic scar, it's one spectrum of impaired bilateral vocal cord function, and it's the most severe form. And we do use uh, costal cartilage posteriorly. Um, we do a ringer fissure, place the costal cartilage posteriorly, and stent the patient for a couple of weeks with a temporary tracheostomy. And that has a better than 95% success rate in decannulating patients. And subsequent to decannulation, if they're still short short of breath, then you can do small laser procedures to open up the posterior glottis because you haven't got the scar anymore. So you can titrate your treatment subsequently. So that's dealing with cases of stenosis. But people have to understand that there are separate problems where you have bilateral impaired vocal cord function, sometimes due to bilateral nerve injury, sometimes due to rheumatoid arthritis, the cricoarotenoid joints and ankylosis or from trauma. So there's a whole spectrum of conditions that can give you immobility of your vocal cords. So we've spoken about the most extreme form. Yeah. And in those in those cases... How do you manage those, the, the bilateral vocal palsies? So if you've got recurrent nerve injury, the vocal cords aren't abducting or they're not abducting adequately. And your options are selective re-innovation, but the jury's still out on that one. The success rates are not high and many patients with tracheostomies still keep tracheostomies afterwards. And it's a big, big procedure. There are various destructive approaches to the glottis, if you like, and I'll use that because that's what it is. Mm-hmm. I thought long and hard about this, and you want to do something that gives you the maximum gain for the minimal injury. Yeah. A lot of my colleagues will do what they call a a Kashimi technique, where just anterior to the vocal process, the arotenoid, you just laser laterally to the inside of the thyroid lamina. And what that does, it lateralizes the vocal fold. So it impairs the voice and opens the airway a bit. But if you look at the airflow studies, your maximum airflow is actually between the arotenoids. So a small expansion between the arotenoids will bring you a greater gain in airflow without significant loss in voicing. Yes, you get an element of breathiness. And you can do a little bit, and you can come back and do a little bit more. You can come back and do a little bit more. You can almost titrate the treatment so as not to compromise the voice too much, but get to a point where that patient is relatively happy with their breathing. So what we do is a partial posterior laser arotenoidectomy on the one side, and we pick the side that's least mobile. 
because as soon as you start doing this surgery, you're going to fix that side permanently. And what you don't want to do is do the surgery on the side that moves a little bit better because you're going to end up making the patient worse. So that's one approach to impaired vocal cord function in both vocal cords due to nerve injury. And the less common, one of the rarest cases of fixation is uh, arthropathy. Mm. And you can do the same operation in those cases because there's no scarring between the arotenoids. You can do take, take a little bit of the arotenoid away. Word of warning, these patients tend to be a bit older. And so make sure that you've assessed the swallow and you don't put them into a position where the swallow is now unsafe. So you, you sort of do a little bit and be careful and then come back to a bit more if you want. Then, then you have patients where they've just come off the ITU, they've had a tube in their glottis for days or weeks, and they've got this sort of granular tissue between the arotenoids. And if left alone, that tissue can coalesce, form dense scar and fix the joints that way. And we tend to be quite proactive in those patients in that um, you gently pick cold steel, pick off the granulation, inject some steroids, come back and do it again in three or four weeks. It's almost like um, tending to the garden. You nurse the posterior glottis to health, give them PPIs, give them antibiotics, whatever it takes um, to give a positive outcome. Because if you do leave it and get dense scar between the arotenoids, then you have to do some sort of open approach that we do. I know there are colleagues that do um, that perform mucosal flaps after doing arotenoidectomies and things like this. I've never found them as successful as just simply um, learning a fissure, separate the scar, and put in a bit of costal cartilage. And you've got to bear in mind uh, the costal cartilage, we use it as a biological spacer. In most cases, three or four weeks later, it's resorbed or it's been coughed up. It, it's not like pediatrics where it will integrate. It hardly ever does that. It might do in a young adult, but it certainly doesn't do it in someone 40, 50, 60 years of age. But it acts as a biological spacer and long enough to separate the cords and stop that scar reforming. Um, some very clever colleagues have started doing this endoscopically, but I'm not so comfortable doing that. That all sounds fantastic. So just thinking now, you've got the patient, they've had their operation Hopefully, you've had, they've had the definitive operation. What are the post-op recommendations for the patient, and how successful do you find the management? Obviously, you've just spoken about quite a number of different techniques, so let's probably take some of them in turn. So, so with our serial GPA MMP sarcoid patient, and you're doing these serial endoscopic approaches, what type of things do they take home? What messages do they take home? So we've got to a point where we do um, do these sort of surgeries as day case procedures in most cases. If they come from some distance or they're unfamiliar with what we're going to do or what it's going to feel like post-op, we'll keep them one night for the first time perhaps. But subsequently, it is very much a day case procedure. We get them to nebulize. They might have some antibiotics to take. They have contact details from some of our nurse specialists if they get into problems. And they're given a plan going forward, usually it will mean more than one operation in this group and they will come back three or four weeks later and have another treatment. So they're just booked straight on the next list? Yeah, they just get booked and uh, for the subsequent procedure. And with regards to the more kind of like CTR, LTR patients, they probably have a longer stay in hospital. They do. So if we, I don't really differentiate between tracheal and cricotracheal resection. I mean, you've got a longitudinal tube and you're cutting a piece out and, you know, sometimes we'll go all the way up to the thyroid cartilage. So it's, it's, it's a resection of the airway. It depends on 
how much you've cut and how much you're allowed to cut will vary depending on how tall the person is, mm-hmm. because they'll have a longer trachea, yep. how young they are. If you're a young person, you'll have more la- elasticity between the cartilages in your trachea, so you can probably get away with cutting a bit more. As you get older, the the, the intercartilaginous spaces become fibrosed and less elastic, so you can cut less as you're older. So it all depends on how much you're allowed to cut. And if you approach the maximum for those for that particular patient, what you do not want is a tension closure. If you get a tension closure, then your worry is one of dehiscence and separation. And quite often, if we think we're going to be close to the margin of what we can get away with in terms of resection, we'll do, in a younger person, we'll do a superhyoid release. In, a, in an older person, we would tend not to do that because we worry about the swallowing and we will tend to get a thoracic colleague in to do a, pul- a lower pulmonary ligament release so that you can pull the trachea into the neck a bit more. And we tend to keep these patients in about eight days. So basically when the sutures are there, one day longer than when the sutures come out. And if there's been a worrisome tension closure, we will often put a chin-to-chest suture so that they don't extend the neck too much and they will have an azogastric tube for a few days just so that they don't cause separation. If the patient is sensible, we'll take that chin-chest suture out usually day one or day two following surgery. Um, sometimes we leave it a bit longer. So tracheal and cracotracheal resection, it tends to be maximum about eight days. If we're doing an expansion procedure on the larynx or we're separating posterior glottic scar, our principle is not to allow healing by secondary intention and leave a stent in for several months, which a lot of groups around the world do. We actually cover the stent with the skin, with some skin from the thigh. And what it means is you can take the stent out two weeks because any of the raw surfaces epithelialize. So you've now got epithelialized surfaces. So when we do posterior glottic scar fixing with a posterior glottic um, costal cartilage graft, they'll have a closed laryngeal stent in, which we fashion from the vertical limb of a T-tube just closed off at the top. We cover it with a skin graft with the raw surface outwards, and we leave it in two weeks. And the patient needs a tracheostomy because now they've got a closed stent across their larynx. So we keep them in 15 days. So they have their operation day one. Day 14, they go back to theatre to have the stent out. And the tracheostomy usually comes out um, as soon as they're awake uh, in theatres. And then we keep them one extra day. And then they go home. If we're worried about the swallowing, they get a swallowing assessment before they go home just because you've opened up... um, the larynx and you want to make sure the swallow is not unsafe so that that's about as long as time we keep the patient in and that's because if the newly fashioned tracheostomy is their only airway yeah and they've got a closed stent in and they manage to lose that somehow you know taking a t-shirt off or something silly like this yeah then in the community that that could be fatal mm. I, so they get very bored they sit in hospital ask <laughs> them to bring lots of books and bits that they can read ipad or whatever but they're in for their own safety, really. Yeah, I know. It makes total sense to, to keep them in. I'm aware that you have written quite a number of um, books, book chapters and papers on this subject. So potentially um, we could share some of these for kind of further reading on our show notes, if that's possible. 
Yeah, please do. We will do that. So, um, well, it just brings me to say thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Sharing your experience of the uh, management of airway stenosis, taking us through from your experience at GOSH and uh, training with David Howard, really sharing your delight with kind of removing tracheostomies and giving people back the quality of life, which is just so important in laryngology. Um, and, you know, taking us through all the different causes of airway stenosis and the MDT approach, the, the investigatory tests to get their baseline function, like the lung functions and swallow tests and really take us through your approaches of managing each and every one of these in our short snippet of our podcast today. What are your take-home messages? In terms of airway stenosis, if you're treating it at all costs, do not create a circumferential injury. The whole philosophy is avoid circumferential injuries in a lumined organ. The other thing to say is that certainly post-ITU, the patients that end up with stenosis following time on the intensive care unit have self-selected for injury. They have aggressive healing biology. These are the most challenging patients to fix. If I get a tracheal resection for a cancer patient, that's straightforward because the chances that the biology is going to fight against me is, is, is remote. It's possible, but it's remote. Whereas following the ITU, these are mm. patients who are going to scar and annoy you really if you do anything wrong. So the patient's first chance of a definitive op is their best chance. So refer to a specialist center if, if you can. Sounds good advice. Thank you so, so much. Uh, for joining us today and we look forward to hearing from you again soon thank you very much natalie have a good night and you we hope you have enjoyed listening this has been bla connections a clear voice i have been your host natalie watson our full series can be found in the podcast provider of your choice or you will find all stored on our bla connect app for easy access we would love to hear from you Please feel free to email with any topics you would like us to explore, any questions you have, along with any suggested experts you would like to hear from. Also, if you would like to contribute to these podcasts, please email inquiries at britishlaryngological.org. Thank you for listening, and we hope you found our podcast informative. Please remember to subscribe and do leave a review with your podcast provider. We do appreciate your likes, subscribes and reviews.